This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here uh, with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Mr. Charles Tian. He is the founder of Watch Charts. Charles, welcome. Hi, Ariel. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'd like to explain to everyone why I'm having you on the show because I think there's so much to discuss in terms of data. This is going to be sort of a very data-driven show because your business, Watch Charts, is about tracking data, finan- you know, price data and financial data, which is really a major part of watch appreciation right now. And there's just so much to talk about. I don't think we'll get to everything. But let's just sort of start with what is Watch Charts for anybody that has no idea? Right. So Watch Charts is sort of a data company in the watch space. So we were inspired by sites like, you know, Kelly Blue Book and True Car for Cars or um, StockX and its predecessor site called Campless uh, for sneakers, stuff like that. So we're really interested in, you know, tracking the market for watches and understanding, you know, sort of what the fair value of watches are and helping collectors buy and sell watches intelligently, meaning knowing the price to pay, you know, knowing where the options are in terms of, you know, the available inventory, and then helping to, you know, buy and sell intelligently and safely. Now, there's a distinction that I think we need to make right now, which is important. Now, you mentioned that you are a community of enthusiasts that built a product for other enthusiast consumers, as opposed to being a service for people that make and sell watches. Help explain why that distinction is important and how that has a real effect on what the watch charts, quote-unquote, product is. Right. So, you know, like we say on our About page, we're built for enthusiasts by enthusiasts. So our interest, you know, from a business standpoint is really to try and help how collectors, you know, research, buy and sell watches. That's really our interest. And um, I think contrary to, you know, some other players in this space that have existed before us, you know, we're really, it's really in our best interest to try and represent the market as accurately as we can. And there's challenges to that. And we, you know, fully acknowledge that and we've talked about such challenges in the past. And we're always trying to get better with that process. But I think the key distinction is that we're working towards this goal of price transparency, towards this goal of a more empowered, more knowledgeable collector and enthusiast. And, you know, we're really working for your benefit. So talk a little bit about how that manifests itself. And again, I, I want to talk a lot more detail, but how do people use it? Why would they use it? You know, talk about why tracking prices is even useful to a lay consumer as opposed to a dealer who would want to be making, you know, business investments on the way. To someone that just wants to buy watches, maybe sell once in a while, why is all this useful? Right. So, yeah, I mean, this is very relatable um, for me as an individual collector starting out. Um, I started getting into watches that are at around uh, 2017, and I started, you know, just sort of buying. Like the first watch I bought was a Citizen Eco Drive, and then I quickly sort of, you know, went up the price point a little bit. Bought Seiko, Orient, uh, Tissot, Hamilton, Omega. That was my sort of first big watch purchase. Um, and I guess I realized a few things. The first is that um, buying at retail is not that smart 
for watches, you know, at these types of price points. And, you know, back then around 2017, 2018, Rolex and Paddock, you know, those stuff like that was crazy, but not nearly as crazy as it is now. Plus, you know, as an early collector, I was not really in the market for that stuff anyways. Um, but, you know, what I realized was these pieces that I, were buying, that I was buying sort of around maybe the few hundred to a few thousand dollar price point, you know, if I bought these watches at retail, um, I was losing, you know, 30, 40, 50 percent plus um, when I went to sell these watches. And, you know, I was a new collector. I didn't really know what I wanted. You know, I think there's this sort of discovery, you know, process that every collector goes through where, you know, they have to sort of figure out what your taste is. You know, what do you like? What do you not like? And you can't really do that through photos. You really have to go do that through an ownership experience, right? And sometimes your perception of a watch changes. You know, maybe when you first get it, you really like it. And then you realize, okay, over time, maybe it's not for me, actually. You know, my tastes have evolved or something like that, right? Um, and so, you know, when it came time to sell these watches, I realized, okay, I was taking a big loss. And, you know, I didn't want to do that. Um, so then I started buying and selling almost exclusively through the secondary market, through uh, pre-owned sources. And my go-to was sites like, you know, Watch, uh, Watch You Seek, the exchange, uh, the sales corner on Watch You Seek, sure. and then Watch Exchange on Reddit. And, you know, as I was buying and selling, you know, I was, I was creating some relatively obscure stuff because I think my tastes are relatively eclectic. And um, it was just very difficult to find reliable information about, you know, what these watches should go for, right? So I was doing a ton of Google searches to try to find historical listings on WatchySeek, on Reddit. I was looking at eBay, like many people do. I was just basically going wherever I could find any sort of data point. And I was basically manually building an Excel spreadsheet with, you know, the timestamp of the listing, the price it was listed at, you know, any notable attributes, whether it had box and papers, what was the condition of the watch, et cetera, et cetera. And trying to graph some sort of, you know, trend and find roughly, okay, what the market price should be, right? And, and I would use this to then decide, okay, if I'm going to buy a watch, what's the price I should pay? Or if I'm going to sell a watch, what's the price I should be okay. asking? Okay. And, oh, and I just realized that, you know, maybe there's a better way to do that. Maybe I could, you know, automate some of that process. And so that was the first idea for watch charts is just to collect all this data from private sales platforms, and then uh, try to classify it, try to structure it, and try to give a sort of estimate for the general range of what a watch might go for. Thank you for sharing that. And I have so much to say. I mean, because this is something that I've been involved with, you know, from a business perspective, but also like you as a consumer for, you know, more than two decades now, there's, you know, been so many companies like watch charts over the years, which what I'm saying is, a consumer who likes watches, who also has maybe some programming experience or building experience, has said, there's a tool out there that would be useful. It'd be useful for me. Uh, I bet other people would find it useful as well. And I remember things like Watch Recon, for example, is one of the first ones that was an aggregator of listings and things like that. It wasn't quite as sophisticated in terms of pricing as watch charts. And there's been lots of little things like that, but it's been such an amazing space for me because people that like watches tend to be very capable, high-functioning individuals that can do things like put businesses together. And it's been amazing to see this sort of, you know, cropping of, of entrepreneurialism. And I love all that. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the core behavior that you're talking about, which I think is so important to discuss because these days, the value, the aftermarket value of a watch is so 
much part of the conversation in a way that it wasn't a decade ago at all. And I think that it's very important to distinguish what people are trying to do. There is a classification of people who indeed are buying watches because they think it's a sound financial investment, meaning they want to buy a watch as an asset. They don't really care if it's a watch. It could be anything. And they want to buy it and hold it because they think maybe somebody else will want it more later and they want to make money off of it. But there's another type of behavior which isn't talked about as much that you hinted at, Charles, that I think is really important to talk about. And that is this. People aren't necessarily buying watches in order to make money off of them, but they want to know that they don't have to be married to a watch. There's so many out there and they want to experience more watches. And if you buy a watch that you can sell for close to what you bought it for, that maximizes your ability to experience more watches. In other words, people aren't selling it to make money. People are selling it because they want another watch. And if they lose too much money, they get frustrated because it's an expensive hobby as it is. And to truly get a variety of watches around you in your life, you'd have to spend an enormous amount of money if you didn't lose as much per sale to buy more. Well, that would allow you to have you know, more watches. Respond to that, please. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great point that you brought up. And, you know, one that I've, you know, I've discussed the exact same point, you know, in multiple places before. Um, and yeah, I, I don't see it as so black and white. You know, I think that like there's these extreme ends of the spectrum where you have collectors, you know, you've heard this advice, like, um, where they say, if you can't afford to just throw the money away on the watch, like if you just, you should just expect to never see the money again when you put it into that watch. And if you can't do that, then you shouldn't buy the watch. And then there's people on the other extreme that you just mentioned, which is they don't even wear the watch. They keep it in a safe. They keep it, you know, with all the stickers on, it's purely an investment vehicle for them. But I think that, you know, most people fall somewhere in the middle and just myself personally, like, if I continued to lose 30, 40, 50% on every single watch I was buying, I just simply would not have gotten as into watches as I am now because the financial cost would have been too high. What I, what I realized is sort of at these, you know, two to 3,000, maybe $5,000 price points, if you buy and sell intelligently, you can experience, you know, all these brands, IWC, Panerai, Cartier, uh, you know, Omega, Tudor, whatever, right? You know, all these brands, and really not have that much, you know, capital expenditure, but really just, you know, sort of reallocating your money from one watch to the other. And I think that, again, that process of owning watches like that and, and a large variety of them is sort of essential to developing your taste as a collector to understand and appreciate the hobby more deeply and figure out what you want. And Are there so- other alternatives? Like, remember Eleven James? It was a rental platform that didn't work for a lot of a, a lot of reasons. But are there other ways of satisfying this need that you and me and so many other people like us have? Which is, it's not that we just want to buy and sell watches all day, but we just want to experience more of them. Right. So I think that if you're you know located in some you know like area like Miami or New York or Los Angeles, or if you you know have the right um, circle, you know, connections, friends, whatever, you know, yeah, then maybe you could borrow their watches. Maybe there's, you know, more opportunities to see watches in person, um, to, you know, go to meetups and stuff like that. You know, I live in Austin, Texas and, um, in sort of the real world, you know, I'm really the only person in my friend group that has any interest in watches 
whatsoever. And I just discovered it purely (laughs) online, you know, of my own volition and, you know, no one else around me, um, that I, that I spend a lot of time with really, you know, gets it to the degree, to to the degree that I do. So I think, yes, if you're in the right situation, you know, with your uh, social circle and where you're located, then yeah, there are other opportunities. Um, and you know, this is not necessarily something for everyone, right? It does take a lot of time um, to buy and sell, you know, privately. And also you have to sort of, you know, take some risks. There, It is, you know, more da- uh, more risky inherently than maybe buying or selling from a dealer, right? Um, and, and that's part of the learning experience. And as I said, it certainly takes more time. But if you're willing to go through that, which I was, you know, for the ability to own and experience and enjoy all these watches, um, then I think, you know, that's where a product like watch charts might help you. Now, I want to talk about another thing because I, you can see I have a lot of sort of like soapbox things here because this, for me, enters a lot of conversations that I think are so crucial. Your, your sort of trajectory as a collector is, is not that uncommon. I was the same way. Loved watches, didn't have friends that wanted to talk about it, went online to find buddies. My strategy was to make a blog to watch.com. Other people have different strategies, and, and that's how we end up, up, up here today. And so, you know, it's, there's a lot that sort of goes through your mind because being a regular guy and you, you're online, you see all these watches you can't afford, it, it makes you pissed off and you do your best, right? You're like, you still want to have the best high-end experience given what you can afford. And for many people, the strategy has been being as, as tight and nimble and efficient with their money as possible because not everyone can just buy a $10,000 watch and have that money be like, whatever, like I bought, you know, a hundred dollar item and it's not that big of a deal. The aspirational audience for watches is so much larger today than it's ever been before. People who are reaching just a little bit higher than they can probably afford. There's nothing wrong with that, but recognizing that it's really not so much people that are like, I'm going to make a fortune on watches. It's really wanting to enjoy the hobby and using the group discussion to discuss some of the best ways uh, of doing that. But I want to talk about a a topic which has been on my mind a lot. I'm about to send out a a newsletter about this that people may have read by the time uh, they hear this. But it's this. The market price is essentially a fantasy. That's that's the beginning of 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 this segment. The market price is a fantasy. Respond. Well, I actually, um, I listened to your um, superlative recording with Tim Masso, um, where okay. I heard you discuss this point. And yeah, I, I, I thought it was interesting and I kind of disagree. And I was trying to sort of follow the logic that you and Tim had discussed. And I've heard this, actually, I've actually heard this point um, from a few other people as well, like maybe a few dealers, which is, yeah, basically the market price doesn't exist because every watch is unique and the circumstances surrounding the sale of every watch are unique. Um, and thus you can't really put a price on any particular watch. I don't, I don't exactly, that's sort of the gist of what I understand to be the argument. But uh, let, let me, let me, let me re- refine it further. I can't speak for everyone. And, <clears throat> and those definitely are some of the points. I think for me, the, the primary thing I'm trying to communicate is that market price is something that someone chose it's usually a function of someone who has a watch to sell saying, this is what I want to sell it for. And by mere virtue of publishing that price, it lends a certain degree of authority when in reality, um, they're just sort of picking up those prices. They would like people to think that the quote unquote market price is higher than it is 
but rather they're being quite ambitious. And then the context of market pricing, as most people talk about it in economic terms, it relates to things that have a lot more um, sample data to choose from. Thousands of people in these circumstances made this decision to buy it. Whereas in the watch context, one person under shady circumstances buying one piece automatically to everyone signals, oh, the market price has gone up $3,000. That's not enough of a sample group to truly identify actual behavioral trends. And so a lot of it has been used as marketing as opposed to actual market data. I think that's what I mean. Right, I agree. Um, and in that case, would you necessarily make the claim that the market price conceptually does not exist? Or would you rather say that, you know, establishing an accurate market price, measuring it in, you know, a sort of academically correct way is challenging because of the unique situation in the watch space? P precisely. So, right. yes, theoretically, scientifically, there is a market price. Our ability to measure it in a lot of contexts is limited, and the market prices that people publish and mention are misleading to the degree that they should be ignored. Right. Um, so I think that there, that, that argument, I, I can see it for certain watches, you know, especially the sort of pieces that are really, you know, been hyped the last few years, you know, stuff like stainless steel Rolex and Paddock and AP. Yeah, definitely, you know, especially with Paddock and AP, actually, because the volumes, the production volumes are so low and um, the amount of inventory, the amount of sales uh, transaction volume you see on the secondary market is, you know, even lower. Um, yeah, it's, it's definitely difficult to sort of pinpoint the market price. Right? And the other part of this equation is, you know, that, you know, parties that are looking at public data sources like we are and like, you know, all collectors are basically, um, do not have access to the same type of information as dealers, right? Dealers or, you know, marketplace platforms know the actual sold price of a watch. As a individual, you might be able to get a few anecdotes from, you know, connections that you might have, or you, you might be able to see a few listings, you know, that have sold on eBay or whatever, or, you know, a bunch of asking prices on eBay or Chrono24 or forums, whatever. But yeah, like you don't really know, you don't, you're not working with the same amount of information. And even just the total amount of information out there is limited, right? So yeah, I would agree that there's challenges, but I would not say that it's futile to attempt to pinpoint a market price for most watches out there, right? Because the watch space is sort of top heavy, meaning that there's a lot of interest concentrated within a few specific models, but then there's so many other watches from other brands out there. You know, we track prices for nearly 40,000 watches in our database, but, you know, maybe the top 100 or top 200 are what, you know, people really care about. But for the vast majority of watches out there where there's not this sort of speculative nature of the audience. Um, I think it's quite feasible. You know, the prices don't move around that much. It's quite feasible to identify a reasonable market price or market range for these watches. Um, and then for the watches that, you know, are more volatile, that are seeing more market movement, I don't think that the attempt to try and identify the market price is futile. I mean, if you if you have the actual data points, right? If you have actual data points um, about these about these watches, then you can publish them, right? And 
someone working with those data points is better off than doing nothing. Okay, yes, you might not be able to say, okay, because of these data points, I can now identify an exact market price of this amount. But it certainly gives you a certain amount of confidence that you didn't have, right? And, you know, we're always trying to improve our process of deriving this data and also our process of measuring how well we derive this data. I I, I think that there's a healthy discussion to have. And the reason I want to have it, there's no one way of looking at it. You just have to listen very carefully to the arguments that people make. Data is, of course, what makes or breaks anything related to this in terms of its utility. Where where does watch charts get the data from? I think that's obviously an important question. I don't know, is that secret or if you make that public, but where does the data come from? Yeah, um, no, we, we make this public and we try to be as transparent as possible. You know, this is also sort of our, you know, way of resonating with the enthusiast is to try to, you know, be as transparent and explain to them, you know, the high level approach of, you know, how we do what we do. So our data comes from three sources primarily. It comes from private sales, which is, you know, platforms like WatchUseek and Reddit, where I got started as a collector. Um, it comes from various, you know, marketplaces that are primarily dealer-driven, like eBay is an example. And then it comes from auction houses, like major auction houses like, you know, Sotheby's, uh, Phillips, and so on. Now, in terms of data integrity, this is a really important part of things. A lot of people, and, and we know this, they look at data, they make conclusions about it, they don't really know what the data is or where it comes from, the things like that. And you yourself have probably seen in the watch space so many situations where people have taken poor quality data, drawn some pretty big conclusions on it, and and have run with it when the data integrity is bad. Talk a little bit about your ability or I guess your, your, your own personal um, standards when it comes to data integrity. How do you ensure data integrity um, and, and help people out there look for some flags that might identify data of a low quality. Right. So there's a few things that we do. Um, like I said, you know, we're always trying to measure, in addition to improving our own data standards, to improve how we measure the data standards. So one thing that we publish is a price confidence, which is uh, a rating of low, medium, high. And that's based on the quantity, recency, and consistency of the data that we're seeing in the market. Um, the other thing that we do is we publish a volatility number. So we're not just giving you one market price, we're giving you actually a range. And we publish that range historically as well. So if you see you know, a range that maybe is historically lower and now is recently getting higher, you know, that shows you that, okay, the volatility in the market is increasing. Maybe there's you know, something going on in terms of the pricing. Maybe you know, people are trying to ask, you know, more aggressive prices and stuff like that. And, you know, I think the high level thing that I would say is that we don't really publish conclusions. We publish, you know, factual information that we have, right? You know, and in fact, a fact could be, you know, there's, there's varying degrees of qualities of facts, right? But, you know, we publish information that we have and we encourage people to draw their own conclusions, right? And uh, we also publish the individual data points that we see to some extent, right? So you can see through our um, watches for sale section or through you know various parts of our website um, underneath when you're looking at data for a specific model, you know all these data points on eBay, on forums that you know might back up 
your uh, our definition, our our measurement of the market price, right? So we're not just giving you one number and telling yeah. you trust us blindly and and you know this is the one number to go off of and this is you know the end all be all. We're saying here's our best estimate. Here's how confident we are in our estimate. Here must here's how much volatility there is in the market, and here's all these data points that may support or maybe you know not support our market price. And if you see a lot of data points that don't support our market price, then maybe there's something wrong with it. Maybe you shouldn't trust it. We make we take a best effort approach, an automated best effort approach to price forty thousand watches on a daily basis. And so yes, the data quality for some watches will be better than others. But we try to make it up to the user, up to the individual, to draw their own conclusion. Caveat emptor, everyone. That never goes away in watches. In terms of the data quality from auction houses, I wonder if you have any thoughts on this. I have suspected for a very long time that if you did a comparison of the sale price of the same watch in a sort of a forum environment, you know, or like on a Reddit or on an eBay versus an auction house, the same watches would trade for lower amounts um, in the sort of Ebays and forums versus the auction houses. I don't know that. Is that, is that true? Because my suspicion is the auction houses um, try to get you to spend more than you need to, meaning if you're trying to spend the best amount, auctions is actually, you know, auction houses, not eBay, but auction houses tend to not be the best place to go. I haven't seen the data. I just want to know if you had any comments on that. Yeah. So we're actually just starting to dig into the auction data ourselves. You know, like you know, our job is, is not just collecting the data, you know, that takes a lot of time, but also then to collect after collecting the data, you have to analyze the data, you have to understand the data before you can start, you know, using the data for in, in the analytics that you publish. So we've spent, you know, the first half of this year collecting a lot of data from auction houses, we haven't published it yet. So there's nothing on our site about auctions yet. But um, that is something that we're looking at to try to understand. And my impression so far, Ariel, is that is the same as yours, that I don't think it's necessarily that auction houses are trying to get you to spend more, but I do agree that it feels like the prices Buyer's that, premium. <laughs> it, it, it feels like the the prices that you know auctions are commanding seem to be higher than platforms like eBay or uh, private sales platforms. And I think that there's a few reasons for this. Um, the first is that there's definitely people that are interested in creating, you know, maybe artificially a high auction price because it's all part of the marketing, right? It's all part of the, you know, story of the brand equity that this watch, you know, that this brand retains value, that this brand is highly, you know, coveted, highly sought after on the secondary market, whatever. Um, and also, you know, maybe I think it's a different audience um, that's you know, bidding on auctions, um, or there's people that are bidding on auctions that are not necessarily as familiar with, you know, the private sales market on Reddit or Watch You Seek or stuff like that. Um, of course, there's also, you know, bidding wars. Um, and sometimes, you know, stuff might go for super cheap for auction. You know, some, sometimes, you know, if it's a watch that is maybe not so hyped, there's, you know, not that, you know, demand, there's not that audience of buyer. And I actually, uh, one of our t uh, teammates at watch charts, one of my coworkers, Hamza, um, was able to unexpectedly win a two tone nineties, uh, Royal Oak at auction from, I believe Sotheby's for a pretty reasonable price, the price that seemed to be below the typical price that we were seeing 
right. um, in our data. So I think stuff like that happens too, because it's just, there's a set audience and there's a set deadline. And it's just, if the, you know, the last bid, you know, once the, once the bid's over, that's the price the watch goes for. I want to talk about some of the you know, recent reports and things you've done. But before we talk about that, I'd like to talk about the fact that a lot of the data that you are collecting and a lot of the conclusions that you're coming to um, can have very positive effects for people like consumers, but can be worrying for people that want to maintain a, a degree of smoke and mirrors out there. Have you found yourself so far playing any games of cat and mouse when it comes to getting data? Um, have you been contacted by people who are concerned about you know, how what you do affects their particular business? I'm just trying to understand about the types of consequences so far you found, um, especially in the sort of interesting challenges where you're like, oh, I had no idea that doing this would upset so-and-so, or I know, you know, now that I'm using this data, so-and-so sees it as being valuable and it's harder to get. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I think, you know, by and large, the feedback that we've gotten has been positive, right? Most collectors, most enthusiasts appreciate what we're trying to do. Um, I think there are certain dealers that, you know, have been unhappy with, um, especially, you know, the recent market downturn, with with that occurrence, you know, they've been unhappy with, you know, maybe the extent at which, you know, the the how much we're claiming, you know, the market is down or whatever. And, and they think that it's creating this, you know, fear, uncertainty um, in the market that they don't really want. They would prefer to keep it smoke and mirrors, like you said. But, you know, largely the, the feedback's been positive from a brand perspective, because we have approached certain, you know, brands or organizations with our data. Um, or we've been, uh, you know, reached out. We uh, they've they've reached out to us. I thought what was interesting is that, you know, brands, from what it appears, uh, seem more interested in the data from a marketing perspective than from an analytical perspective. Meaning, yeah, they want to be able to make claims that boost the equity of their brand, that boost the you know public perception and appeal of their brand based on the data rather than using the data to maybe refine their strategy or understand, you know, what is it that the consumers are feeling about the product? I can explain that. That's easy. I mean, it's, it's not, <laughs> yeah, it's not surprising. I mean, I think what's what, I mean, I think initially we were a little bit surprised, but yeah, I think it makes total sense. Um, you know, given, it's who you're speaking what, to there, there, there are people at the brands who theoretically could make sense of this data. There's not a lot of them, but the marketing people you're speaking to, very narrowly think about what's in it for them. Right. So they don't even care about those things. And frankly, they don't even like necessarily think that there would be value to those others. So they might send it up to those higher ups that may or may not look at it, may not even appreciate what's in there. And then they themselves just, again, it wouldn't help their job, for example, to, 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 to come to any of those conclusions. Right. But what it would help is to, you know, improve, improve the marketing, you know, material, improve the yeah. brand perception, you know, stuff like that. I mean, I've I, similar to you, and again, you're, you're more fortunate because you've come a little later on in my early stage when I first started this. I mean, most brands even have websites, right? So mm -hmm. they're they're light years beyond where they were back then. <laughs> but it is an educational process where you have to repeat over and over and over it again. This is why it might be useful to you. This is how other brands use it. Here's another example of how you can use it. And over time, they're like, oh, so that's how we might use it to approach our business. And you have to understand from their perspective, and I think this is very important for people to understand, they are preyed upon by 
quote-unquote data firms, consultancies, agencies, whatnot, that try to sell them reports of all different types, often with horrendously poor data. And those marketing pitches um, to the brands are much more sophisticated because they know they have crappy stuff, but they have fancy presentations. When you have great data and a great tool, you tend to not put as much emphasis in the marketing because you're like, I don't need it. My stuff is amazing. So on the brand side, they're getting a bunch of fancy pitches from crooks, a bunch of, you know, okay pitches from legitimate companies, and they don't know what to make of it. Right. Yeah, and I agree. I, I think it's definitely a you know long term outlook. I think it's like that not just for the brands, but also for you know the individual collectors as well um, to help them understand that you know there is a better way that you can be researching and you know buying and selling watches. Um, and you know that's why I think that you know is the product perfect? No, there's a lot of issues with it right now. You know, there's a lot of things we've come a long way. But there's still a lot of things we can improve. And I think that'll probably always be the case. But I don't think it's not worth doing because, you know, you look at any other industry. You know, I've mentioned cars. I've mentioned sneakers, you know, um, classic cars. There's wines, uh, you know, all these different collectibles, all these different markets. There are some, you know, there there is data about those markets. There are publishers of data about those markets that are reliable, that are trusted, you know, I don't think that watches is just somehow so difficult, somehow so you know different from those other markets where it would be impossible for a data-driven tool that tracks prices to exist. I think it just hasn't happened yet because the, mar- the watch industry is a slower-moving industry. The people in the space are older and the practices are more traditional. But I think that especially with you know the younger generation of collectors like myself, that are more value-oriented, that a tool like this should exist. I think we have the capability to improve it over time. And slowly, you know, like you said, brands will see the value as well. Other players will see the value as well. Have you visited the gift store for watch lovers? It's called the Blog to Watch store, and we carry art, apparel, and accessories for today's timepiece enthusiasts. You can buy your wristwatches elsewhere, but at the Blog to Watch store, you can celebrate your watch collecting hobby with high quality original products. The Blog to Watch store features a line of t-shirts inspired by iconic timepieces and designed by the collecting experts at Blog to Watch. We also carry some incredible art that will look great on your walls, letting everyone know about your watch collecting enthusiasm. The bespoke yet affordable products which the Blog to Watch store carries have been designed and curated by the Blog to Watch editorial team. We ship internationally and right now are offering free global FedEx priority shipping on every shirt and watch pouch. We add new products all the time, so be sure to check out store.ablogtowatch.com. That's store.ablogtowatch.com. Now, you recently did a report with uh, Morgan Stanley, I believe. Correct. Talk about what that report was. Why would you, you know, need to collaborate with them? Was it for you? Was it for them? How did that work out? And in general, you know, how does that frame, you know, part of the business and part of what you're doing? What are the, you know, what is the, the long-term uh, goal of certain reports like this? Right. So the goal is really to, you know, try and establish ourselves as sort of the most authoritative, the most trustworthy source um, for secondary market pricing. And um, the way we got the connection to do that report was actually just completely 
by accident, just a stroke of luck. Um, so Morgan Stanley, for the past, I believe, five years, has been publishing a report on the primary market um, with a consultant uh, consultants group called Lux Consult, which is run by uh, Oliver Mueller, who was a former watch industry insider, and now he consults for various watch brands. Um, they came out with a report called the Magnificent, Magnificent Seven at the beginning of this year, which was their fifth annual um, report on the primary mar- watch market, uh, primary Swiss watch industry. And in that report, they made some mention of the secondary market, but nothing very concrete. So then we reached out to Oliver and we said, okay, well, maybe there's some way that, you know, we could help provide some secondary market data to back up, you know, these claims. Cause they just made some very general claims like, okay, you know, the, the market is going up, you know, whatever, but they didn't really measure it. They didn't really quantify it. Um, and just coincidentally, Oliver had already reached out to the people at Morgan Stanley and recommended that they look at our data because he thought that our data was the most reliable data on the secondary market that was available. And so then we connected with the folks at Morgan Stanley that way. And we sort of said, okay, well, you know, we've, you guys have already been talking about the primary market for watches for five years. Why don't we try to, you know, make some overall statements, you know, some, some observations about the secondary market for watches as well. And so that's how the idea yeah. started. And Mr. Mueller has been on, on this show, of course, so it's a small world. Right. Um, what, did, what, did you, what did you find? What were some of the, the overall conclusions? So we published this report at the beginning of this month, and um, it was meant to be a report sort of focused on the second quarter of 2022. And the Overarching, the biggest conclusion was just that for the first time since, you know, this period of unprecedented market growth that we've seen, basically, you know, starting from 2019, 2020, maybe right around COVID, you know, things really picked up a lot last year where the market for certain watches, you know, namely like Rolex, Padex, APs has just gone absolutely insane um, over this period. And then and that continued in the first quarter of 2022 as well. But starting from the second quarter, this was sort of the first notable downturn in the secondary watch market since all this craziness started. And that was sort of what we started. That was what we led with in the report. And then we just sort of broke it down and tried to quantify, okay, how much is the market down? What are some factors that might be causing it? Um, and maybe what are some noteworthy you know, analyses on a brand by brand basis or even like model by model basis. Now, is it surprising that the market is is, is going down? I mean, it, it went up. Things that go up must come down. There's a lot of logic behind why it would. But the but again, a lot of the times that people like they freak out. I mean, are you surprised by this? I am I have not seen anything that's been particularly surprising when it comes to that. I mean, I was surprised that watches did as well as they did during the pandemic, I'll be honest. But that with inflation uh, and interest rates going up and disposable income going down and people getting back to work and spending less time at home buying stuff, like, is any of this surprising to you? It's not to me. Yeah, I mean, you know, certainly for brands like Rolex, um, I don't think it's incredibly surprising. Um, I think the timing is difficult to predict. Um, I don't think that, like, in March of this year, I would have, you know, said, oh, yeah, the, right, the, the downturn is right around the corner. 
I think that's pretty difficult to predict. But certainly I felt like the rate of growth was not sustainable. And I felt like it was just, you know, there's so many people that have gotten, you know, extremely wealthy over the pandemic. Pandemic, The sort of disparity in wealth has increased and all these markets are going insane. People are looking for ways, basically places to park their money. And watches was just another one of those places where rich people who got richer just said, okay, I don't know what to put my, my money in. Oh, Rolex seems like a good bet. Paddock seems like a good bet, whatever. Um, and I definitely felt like that was unsustainable. So in that sense, I felt like it was not um, unexpected. The other side of this argument is specifically for you know more limited production brands like Paddock and AP, which are also down, by the way. Every, so we say the market, I think, since the peak is down about 15% overall. Um, Paddock is about is, is, is similar, and then AP is maybe like 11%. But for brands like Paddock and AP, there's always this, this question that was pretty interesting to me. Um, and it sort of started from this article from, I believe his name is NYC Watch Guy or Watch Guy NYC. He's, he's going to be upset that I don't know which one it is because one of those, <laughs> okay. one of those is a dealer, and the other one is this guy. His name is Vasu. He's, uh, he's another entrepreneur. And he's, some, he's someone that we've talked to. Um, in the past. And he wrote an article sort of describing, you know, the situation with AP and Paddock where, you know, by estimates, um, you know, Swiss watch industry estimates, they maybe make like something like $50,000, uh, sorry, 50,000 pieces a year of production. Right. Um, and if you think about the number of millionaires in the world, the number of 10 millionaires in the world, um, it does seem feasible that, you know, the number of people wanting a watch like a paddock or a watch like an AP potentially far exceeds the ability, you know, of these watchmakers to produce watches. Um, and it's also not like there's a lot of sub, you know, suitable substitutes, right? It's not like there's a brand that can, you know, sort of easily come and rival the heritage, the brand equity, the quality of the pieces produced by these brands at the scale that they're produced. So in that sense, I do feel like, okay, well, if you know the world is more interested in watches, which I feel like over the last few years the world has gotten more interested in watches just as a whole, then relatively speaking, you know, being able to buy a paddock or an AP, you know, um, from a retailer like new every year, that does seem like a pretty limited audience. Um, and so, in that sense, like I don't know, I've always felt like I, I've just, I guess, based on reading that article, I just felt like yeah, there, there is maybe some argument there that. Um, you know, these brands that have quite limited production are maybe, you know, there's, it's, it's not like Rolex, you know, it's not like that they make a, mil a million watches a year. But, you know, the other thing we've seen is that really none of the brands, none of the models that have, you know, been insanely hyped, you know, over the last two years, the prices have gone up, you know, doubled or sometimes tripled, you know, none of them have dropped below their original retail prices, right? So, I think the demand is still there, but it's just it's less insane than it used to be. See, but is that is that a bad thing? Because I think there's this thing where there's people here that worry, uh, like stock investors, that things don't just keep going up and up and up and up. But with, 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 there's nothing to worry about when it comes to demand. People like watches probably more than they should, given 
the state of the world, right? Like they're, they're hyper popular for whatever reason, luxury watches are much more popular now than they were 10 years ago, at least within pop culture. So demand for watches is high. People will continue to want them. But this idea that everything is going to be a hype object, that everything is going to rely on fear of missing out, uh, that this is somehow going to be able to be like the sustainable, like everything sells out all the time. I mean, this is utter nonsense uh, that this is somehow the model now. It's sort of like everyone thinks that if you don't have like a viral hit, you failed. I mean, by definition, those are supposed to be rare and unpredictable. And even people that do viral hits aren't able to replicate it again and again and again. A lot of it is just sort of dumb luck. And so if your aim is to sort of like do the impossible, which is like every time you make a watch, it sells out right away, or every watch you buy is going to go up in value, or that you're going to be able to sell it for exactly as much as you paid for it. Like these are unreasonable expectations. And so I think that to a large degree, hopefully part of what companies like watch charts do is spread like, you know, reasonable expectations because social media is so good at feeding people utterly, you know, unreachable goals. I mean, you know, what, what do you think about all that? Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think that, um, you know, I, I've always attributed a big part of this to sort of the brand's behavior as well. Like, I think when you look at the brands, you know, that have been successful in this sort of market bubble that we've experienced um, over the past two years, brands like Rolex, Paddock, and AP, these are these are brands that historically have always sort of, you know, stayed the course. They've, they've sort of taken a very slow and steady approach to their product development rather than trying to create hits, you know, one after the other. And the other thing is that all these, all three of these brands are independent, um, which means I think that there's less pressure from shareholders to deliver, you know, quarterly results. Um, And they can also sort of take the brand in the direction that they want. They're not limited, like, you know, Omega's limited, because they have to fit within the swatch portfolio of, you know, product, you know, placement and positioning in the market. But yeah, I think the ones that have done well are the ones that have not chased the hype, the ones that have just sort of did what they believed was right, taken a long-term approach and, you know, stayed true to that. And, you know, we've always, I've always been a very value oriented collector, right? I, I don't enjoy paying over retail for watches. I want to find sort of, you know, hidden gems, like hidden, you know, good deals that are, you know, maybe overlooked watches, brands that are overlooked, but, you know, make a really interesting product. And, you know, watch charts exists fundamentally for that type of collector, right? It's only sort of because of the market situation that we've seen in the last year or two where, okay, like every time there's an article that's written and we're quoted in the media, it's because of some, you know, analytics about Rolex or some analytics about Paddock. You know, as I said, we cover 100 brands. We cover 40,000 models in our database. We do a lot of stuff that's, you know, not Rolex, Paddock, AP. We have, you know, probably 5,000 references for Seiko alone. We spent months adding Seiko references because, you know, we want that type of collector, you know, that I was, you know, at the beginning when I first started out to be able to use our tool just as well as someone who's looking at Rolex or Paddock. So let's talk about that because I'm like you. I like more original watches. I really don't like buying hyped anything. I don't think there's a lot of value in it. But unless you specifically know about those watches, and you know, there's very few people like me that have just seen a bunch of stuff and know what kind of esoteric brands and models to search for, how can a platform like Watch Charts introduce people to watches that 
they would like to buy because it's a good price, but otherwise had no idea existed. Yeah. So um, we have a tool called the screener. And, you know, in addition to collecting prices for all these watches, we've also built a pretty sizable database of specifications. So for each watch, we track, you know, stuff like the case diameter, the case material, the lug width, you know, et cetera, et cetera, the dial color. And what we do is that if you go to our website, And at the very top navigation bar, there's a tab called Screener. You click that. You can apply, you know, any number of these filters. And you can also filter by price point or brand. And then basically see what comes up, right? Um, You know, if you want to look for annual calendars in stainless steel between $10,000 and $20,000 that are 40 millimeters in case diameter, you know, you can get a list of those watches using our tool. And then from there, once you have that list, you can then go look at the pricing for each one and maybe, you know, find the piece that you would like to buy. Um, but we built that tool, you know, and that, that really ha- doesn't have much to do with, you know, the market for watches. But we built that tool because I, you know, resonated with that exact problem that you described. It's just there's so many watches out there. There's so much information out there, but it's very unstructured. And as a watch enthusiast, it's really hard if you have a very particular taste or, you know, you just want to sort of see all the stuff that's out there. It's, it's very hard to do so in a systematic manner. And so, you know, we are committed to building experiences like that as well, which are just, you know, useful to everyday collectors. They have, they have nothing to do with the market. But you'll agree that more can be done, right? Because it still requires a bit of an imagination and a lot of trial and error because a lot of times the watch you like, you're drawn to it visually. It's not like, well, Every 38 millimeter wide watch will do. No, not necessarily. So it's it's great that you've identified that there's an opportunity there, but you'll agree that maybe a little bit more imagination uh, might might be in store to to actually figure out a good discovery tool. Right. I mean, of course, yeah. You know, that's just the starting point, right? Of course, you know, you then have to look at you know your personal taste, the aesthetics, you know, whatever else that you think is important, but. It just gives you a starting point based on whatever parameters. Like, you know, I, I know that I'm, for example, very unlikely to be interested in buying a watch that's, you know, over 40 millimeters or over 41 millimeters. Um, and so, you know, I can use that as my starting point for um, where, I, where I do research. But, you know, when it comes to recommendations, when it comes to discovery, you know, I think it's funny that, like, platforms like Instagram, which are, you know, supposedly all about discovery, I think have actually really made the watch world a lot more narrow in that I think it's really created this echo chamber where everywhere you go, well, aside from ads, so you get ads for all these, you know, different micro brands or, you know, whatever brands you've ever heard of or these products you've ever heard of. But aside from all the ads, all you get is like the same wrist shots of a Rolex, a Patek, an AP, a Richard Mill, you know, whatever it might be. And, and, you know, that's, that's sort of all you see on your feed. And it's actually limited the amount of discovery that you can do, despite being sort of pitched as a discovery platform or sort of known as a discovery platform. I'm going to admit, I got, I got to comment on this because this is, I think, so, so key to what I do as a professional. Now, I'm going to sort of comment on what you're talking about, social media. Social media, people like Instagram because they think they're discovering things. People, kids go to Instagram for for news, like what's going on in the world. Like right. they don't trust it, but they go to it for that. The idea is that they believe that by going to this platform, they're going to be introduced to things they didn't otherwise know about. But that's actually not how Instagram tends to work when it comes to watches. It tends to have a 
a reinforcing effect upon the popular ones. So all you see is more and more of the same thing because Instagram thinks that's what people like because then the the other weird things don't necessarily get liked because by definition they're more they're more niche, which is what you're looking for. Now, what is the solution to this? I don't think there's an algorithmic solution to it. I think algorithms by definition are not in the best position to, to determine all this. Um, a blog to watch sits there and tries to curate content. We see a bunch of stuff. We use you know, human filters to be like, okay, everyone, this is what you should know about both popular and weird, high-end, low-end, just whatever's a cool watch. And if you, tr if you follow a blog to watch over the years, you're going to be introduced to those exact things that you wouldn't have known about, some things you don't care about, but ultimately you're not the only watch lover out there. But if it was an algorithmic approach and all we were trying to do is get clicks, what we would do is just focus on the popular and then it'd be, you know, like you said, you know, some Rolex and Patek and some Omega and it'd be like 10 brands or less. It'd be the most boring thing in the world. So I really think it goes back to that level of human curation where there's like nerds like me and you and a few other people that know all this stuff and we create content which curates that this weird, wild, massive world for everyone else that can't dedicate their life to it. Yeah, I mean, it's exactly as you said, you know, the Instagram algorithm, the Facebook algorithm, they exist to create engagement, right? They're going to show you experiences that, you know, have repeatedly gotten engagement. They're going to show you more things like the things that you already like, not, you know, different things. They're not going to show you things that might conflict with your worldview because then you'll stop engaging, right? Um, it's the same way, you know, politically, not to get into But that. will you? That's the thing which is interesting. There's measurable engagement and then there's actual engagement. And and I don't mean to be splitting hairs here, but I really think that there's plenty of engagement which happens that you can't measure that they dismiss. And I and I have this situation, I'm talking about this with you because you're a data person. I have this with advertisers all the time. They're like, banners need more clicks. I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're assuming that the only way of measuring the effect is by someone stopping what they're doing and clicking into some other website. What about reading what's actually in the banner? What about the fact that they're spending multiple minutes on this page, they're staring at your banner and they're reading every word that's on it and they're looking at every image. You can't measure that for shit, sorry to say, but that's actually the value. So do we not have a problem where we're becoming more and more obsessed with measurable data, even though that creates vast limitations on what we're perceiving. Yeah, I mean, you know, I've, I've thought about this situ this uh, question myself because, you know, we've also um, sort of entertained the idea of running banner ads for, you know, some organizations. And yeah, you know, certainly I think that the placement, like just, you know, having that sort of brand awareness, even if you can't necessarily measure it through a click, but, you know, you do get that impression. Yeah, it is, it is you know, to some extent valuable. I think that advertisers would like to see more clicks because, you know, that shows that not only that they saw the ad, which is maybe more difficult to measure because impression does not necessarily mean that they read every word, like you said, um, but that they actually liked the content and then clicked through. But, you know, it's sort of it's sort of a back and forth, right? It's sort of, okay, you have to do your job as a publisher to, you know, place the ads in a strategic position, but then also the ads have to have something that's interesting enough to where the user actually you know, wants to click through. But I'm going to say something right now. Charles, I'm going to defend you and I'm going to say something right now. To everyone out there who's in advertising and does anything related to clicks, this is what you need to know. Every single quote-unquote successful click campaign, when you see a lot of clicks, is because the, the banner is placed in a way where you accidentally click on it, okay? There is no successful overtime in modern sense click-through rate campaign where the high number of clicks isn't based upon a trick, 
uh, where people are clicking something that they don't think is that or it's, it's, it's in their way. It's all a scam. If you're basing marketing decisions on click-through rate and that alone, you're just giving credence to scams or, or instances on legitimate websites where someone thinks they're clicking on something else and boom, there's a banner in their way. It's not real engagement. I've said it. That's the way I feel. Well, and the other thing is like on Instagram, you know, if you go back to social media, like the truth is, you know, if you look at our feed, um, we post a lot of Rolex paddock AP, right? Um, and if we were to post, you know, I, I don't like necessarily posting all those watches. When we first started Instagram, you know, we're sort of two years into posting every day on Instagram now. When I, when we first started on Instagram, I wanted to post a lot of, you know, other stuff like IWC or Bulgari or, you know, something else. But those will get like 10% of the views and, and 10% of the impressions, 10% of the likes of, you know, a post about a Rolex, right? That's just, you know, sort of the nature of the platform. Like you, you either have to just accept it if you're on the platform or just, you know, choose not to be on the platform. But I think it's not a discovery tool. That uh, The idea is right. that the platforms are not a discovery tool. Use it for whatever you want, just like Charles says, but don't don't believe it's a discovery tool because it's not. Yeah, I think that if you want to do discovery, um, first of all, there's blogs, like you said, uh, you know, a blog to watch. Although I think with blogs, it's, and I know that you've written about this subject, Ariel, but um, I think it's very difficult. It's, it's becoming increasingly difficult these days to, you know, find you know, journalism that is maybe not objective, but not, you know, written to sell you a product, right, in the watch world. Well, just listen. We're, look, people that buy watches are very smart. You know the difference between marketing. You know an opinion. You know what, who a mercenary is. You know advertising. You know it in your heart. Maybe it'll take you a while to figure it out, but, you know, just a blog to watch. We make it clear what the ads are and what's the editorial. When you don't know how someone makes money, watch out. Yeah. yeah. And um, like, I think Hodinkee is more guilty of this, honestly. Uh, you know, I, I know that's, that you, that's what you they guys, say. <laughs> you, you guys don't sell watches. So I know it's a little bit, although you guys, yeah, you guys do a lot of sponsored content. But, you know, like Hodinkee, yeah, I think it's, it's very difficult for me to, you know, want to read their journalism when it's embedded with a bunch of ads for the Hodinkee shop. And then at the end, it's like, okay, you know, check out this brand or check out, you know, what we have for sale through Kind of Caliber or whatever. Um, yes, you know, people people are smart. People realize that that's, you know, what they're doing. But I don't think that's a justification for them to do what they do. But I think on the other hand, I do understand, you know, there's it's media very difficult. and there's stores. Okay, different business models. Yeah. It and, is and, difficult. It is difficult, and a lot of media have made the decision to become a store, but you right. cannot be both media and a store. You have to be open and honest with what you are. Consumers will respect it. If you have a heritage of being media and you decided what you really want to do is sell watches, that's great. But don't bandy about like you're still media and make all these presumptions that everyone's like, you're not still media. Don't pretend. None of this sort of like emperor's new clothing thing. Just, just it, it is what it is. There's companies that make watches. There's companies that sell watches, and there's companies that talk about watches. You need these this minimum three. You can't have any right. of this. Yeah, and um, you know that's very much in line with our philosophies philosophy as well. Like we we write if we don't we write this we make this claim publicly, and I don't think this will ever change. We will never be in the business of buying and selling watches, right? I don't think that we can be objective in our approach to publishing information. If we are then trying to leverage that information to make money buying and selling watches, I think there's just an inherent conflict of interest there. And, you know, that is a line that 
just personally, like the retail business is not really one that I'm interested in, but I also think it's just the line that, you know, you can't really get past. And it's, a, and it's an important issue right now because, like you said, media is so crucial to how people make decisions about watches. They learn about brands. They, they become romanced by models and brands. It right. drives them to pursue sales. Uh, it, they discover things they wouldn't otherwise know. Media is the most crucial thing. Uh, what we've also talked about is that social media has not replaced it because the algorithms that they're based upon – ultimately aren't very good at teaching people things and they're too expensive to advertise on all day. It's actually way cheaper to advertise on traditional media like in a blog to watch or otherwise. And that this is sort of a, a, a moving target, if, if you will. Um, when it comes down to it, media needs to be able to make money to help the industry. But if all the media turns into stores or something else and isn't able to monetize what they do, isn't that ultimately bad for the industry? All those watches that, that should be selling, that should be talked about, have a place in media somewhere. But if the industry is so antagonistic to media that has their own opinions about things, are we ever going to get anywhere? Or is all the media just going to turn into something else, like a watch store or otherwise? Like a blog to watch is still here out of persistence and determination and grit, not because it was the easy way to make money. Yeah. And, you know, as a collector, if all the media that you're consuming is, you know, written with an agenda to sell you that watch, I think that it's very easy to also become disillusioned. Um, and I think that overall, that will result in long-term less people being interested in watches. I think you need, you know, it's, it's just, you look, I look at the other, I look at other industries, you know, the car industry has been a big, you know, I've mentioned it multiple times. It's been a big sort of inspiration in, for us in terms of, you know, figuring out the roadmap for our type of product. And I think that it's inevitable that if the industry is to succeed, that the consumer become more knowledgeable more empowered, has easier access to information, the market becomes more transparent. And you can't, like, I mean, I think the watch industry has been very resistant to that, but you can't survive, I think, long-term and, you know, not expect that to happen. Charles, we're out of time. This has been a great uh, chat. Um, let people know where they can learn about you and uh, anything else you want to plug. Yeah, so our site is watchcharts.com. Um, as I mentioned, we also have an Instagram account where we post infographics and, you know, pictures of watches that we like every single day. It's just uh, the handles at watch charts. Um, we've also recently started a podcast of our own, actually, where we talk about watches from a more market oriented trend. Um, and we publish some videos on YouTube as well. It's youtube.com slash watch charts. So, yeah, you can check us out on all those platforms. And thanks for having me. Charles of Watch Charts on this episode of the Superlative Podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ariel. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at ablogtowatch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com. <laughs>